For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text Monica to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Wednesday, Hump Day. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to follow me on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore, and on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also, the email address for this show is Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. I read them all, I see them all, but I can't read yours unless you send me one. All right, coming up later this week on this show, a GOP rising star, Congressman Byron Donalds of Florida. Byron is an extraordinary talent. He is young, he is cool, he's brilliant, he gets it. And he gets why and how the Republican Party is slipping beneath the waves. And he's got a tremendous approach and strategy for reaching younger voters. I heard all about it this weekend. I went to the David Horowitz Freedom Center Restoration Weekend. I was very honored to be one of their keynote speakers over the weekend. Tremendous, tremendous crowd. By the way, I posted a number of photos of me giving my big speech and talking to people over the weekend up on my Instagram. So if you're not already following me on Instagram, get with the program, Monica Crowley underscore. But there are some great pictures from the weekend up there in, in me giving my speech. So please check that out. But Byron and I spent a good deal of time together over the weekend. And I was like, Byron, we're long past due for you on my podcast. And he was like, uh, yeah, 
So he's going to be here on Friday, and that is a conversation you do not want to miss, okay? Also, today, another huge, fun, important conversation with the one and only James O'Keefe of Project Veritas. I saw O'Keefe at the Restoration Weekend as well. I also said to him, you're long overdue to come on the Monica Crowley podcast. And he was like, "Uh, yeah. So he is going to be here today and we're going to have a very extensive conversation with him about his work with Project Veritas, about guerrilla tactics, about the propaganda press, about big tech, about Twitter. After all, he got suspended by the last Twitter regime. His account does not exist on Twitter. He got thrown off. So now that Musk is in charge, is he going to have his account restored? What is the future of big tech, Project Veritas? Citizen journalism. What is the future of all of that? So O'Keefe, coming up, conversation you don't want to miss. Tell all of your friends, okay? But first, the Monica memo. Donald Trump, he's doing it again. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. So many incredible friends and family here tonight. It's such a beautiful thing. It's, some people say, how do you speak before so many people all the time? If, when there's love in the room, it's really easy, if you want to know the truth. It really is. You ought to try it sometime. (laughs) Well, so Donald Trump is going to beat back all of the odds. As you just heard, he is running again for the Republican nomination for president of the United States. And Donald Trump is many things, but maybe the primary thing he is, is a showman. And last night's speech was quite an event. I want to take it apart. I want to talk about where we are in this race for 2024. I mean, 2022 is not even over yet. We still have the Herschel Walker race in Georgia. And by the way, you know, Trump is, Trump's getting pounded. I want to talk about that too. But he, very early on in the speech uh, yesterday, he talked about Herschel Walker, who is his longtime friend. He talked about the Georgia runoff and he said to everybody, Get out and vote in Georgia for Herschel Walker. The balance of the Senate, we know that the Democrats will have operational control of the Senate, uh, but we really need that extra seat. So do not be discouraged. Go out there, mobilize, do everything you can for Herschel Walker. He made that very clear. So he can't be criticized for or blamed If something goes awry in that race, he made it very clear yesterday when he had the international microphone and the international stage, there was mass media there yesterday. They all hate on Trump. And at one point, Trump said, "Uh, I'm not going to raise the fake news. And then he looked at all of the cameras in the back. Um, He he was covered very extensively yesterday. Obviously, nobody was going to ignore Donald Trump and what he had to say last night, but he made it very clear early on in the speech that Herschel Walker is the priority right now, and that is 100% true, and good for Trump for doing that. One of the really important lines that he uh, gave last night in this speech was when he talked about what desperate condition America is in right now, thanks to the historic Biden catastrophe, and he spoke 
about bringing America back. Listen. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, and my fellow citizens, America's comeback starts right now. Two years ago, when I left office, the United States stood ready for its golden age. Our nation was at the pinnacle of power, prosperity, and prestige, towering above all rivals, vanquishing all enemies, and striding into the future, confident and so strong. In four short years, everybody was doing great. Men, women, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Hispanic Americans, everybody was thriving like never before. The American comeback starts now, starts right now. You know, um, a lot of people could deliver that line, but nobody really has the credibility to deliver that line like Donald Trump. Why? Because after eight years of Obama, Trump came in and actually did bring America back. So when he speaks about an American comeback, it is about bringing the country back. And, you know, I do want to say here, as someone who worked for President Nixon during the last years of his life, Richard Nixon was the ultimate comeback kid. He had been beaten down, uh, destroyed, uh, ruined on so many occasions throughout his life and political career. And yet time and again, Richard Nixon stood up, dusted himself off, and launched yet another comeback. And those comebacks, one by one by Richard Nixon, were extraordinary, including the final one. After Watergate, when the same deep state that's going after Donald Trump attacked and destroyed Richard Nixon... Uh, Nixon then spent the next 20 years of his life coming back, not into political office like Donald Trump seeks, but writing books, being on the international stage, having every president except for Jimmy Carter coming to him for advice, uh, traveling the world, giving advice to heads of state, resurrecting himself as an elder statesman, which is exactly what he did. And in many ways, that was the ultimate comeback right? But he had run and lost the presidency in 1960, thanks to the Kennedys and Democrats stealing that election from him. Then he ran and lost in 1962 for governor of California to Jerry Brown Sr., okay? These political dynasties just never go away. Um, And then he comes back six years later in 1968, runs and wins, wins re-election in a landslide in 72, And two years later, he is gone. So then he spends the next 20 years coming back in a different way. So it may very well be that Donald Trump is going to give Richard Nixon a real run for his money in terms of being the ultimate comeback kid. Now, again, when Trump said there, talking about the American comeback, yes, he was talking about the country, but he is also talking about himself. Okay. So, uh, over the course of this speech, Donald Trump talked about delivering a booming economy in his first term. He also talked about how he delivered world peace, which is something I have been talking about here and on Fox and everywhere else for a long time. Trump delivered a booming economy and world peace. I don't know what more people expect or want from an American president. Oh, no, no mean tweets, though. Monica, we want all of that, but no mean tweets. 
okay, we can discuss his style. We can discuss his disposition and, and the way he communicates. But you know what? When it came to actual policy, people loved it. They may not have liked him or the mean tweets or the style or whatever, but they liked what he delivered for them. And that's why last night you saw that change in tone. Before we get to that, let's roll this final clip here of uh, Donald Trump talking about how he delivered world peace. The world was at peace. America was prospering and our country was on track for an amazing future because I made big promises to the American people. And unlike other presidents, I kept my promises. I kept them. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, here, here's my view of what happened last night at Mar-a-Lago and the speech itself. Donald Trump did extraordinary things for this country in just four years. And when you think about it, he delivered those extraordinary things for the American people, despite the fact that he was beset by constant attacks. He was under fire uh, nonstop, literally from the moment he came down the escalator. The deep state, the propaganda press, the permanent bureaucracy, the Republican establishment, the international community, the list is long. So despite being under withering attack like this, the man delivered a thriving economy and world peace. Imagine what he could have done for America and America's interests if he had a truly free hand those four years. But they would never let him do that because he's an existential threat. He remains an existential threat to all of them and their absolute grip on power. But he delivered this extraordinary record in just four years, despite all of that. And what I wanted him to do last night, which in fact he did, is stay on policy and principle and talk about that tremendous record of the first term, turn the page on 2020, and I know it's not fair. I know that the Democrats moved heaven and earth to rig that election in, in most ways legally, okay? And our side, we're going to deal with that another time, but our side not picked up the ball and fixed any of that stuff. So we turned the page on 2020, and he gave overall last night a very forward-looking address that focused on delivering a better future out of the historic Biden catastrophe. And he did it with a tone of thoughtfulness, of calm, of responsibility, of the gravity of what he was doing last night, what he was announcing and the road ahead, not just for him, but for the country. In terms of style and substance, Donald Trump knocked it out of the park yesterday. He did exactly what he needed to do, and he did it exactly the way he should have done it. My only criticism is it should have been tighter and shorter. Okay, now Trump, when he's at a rally, can go two hours telling jokes, making people laugh, and the whole thing, and he's outside, and he's got the crowd. Last night, he had the crowd, but it was a different kind of speech, and so that's my only criticism. Everything else, I think, was pitch perfect and totally on point. Now, this Republican campaign for the nomination Two days in politics can be an eternity. 
two years in politics running for an office is also <laughs> really an eternity. Anything could happen here, okay? And that's a big risk of coming out so early and, and announcing. Um, you know, there are probably a million things we're not privy to here with Donald Trump in terms of why he announced early. And it could be that the feds are planning to indict him and there's all kinds of legal stuff going on behind the scenes. Uh, look, there, there are a million reasons why he announced yesterday, some of which we know, some of which we don't. But I will say that Donald Trump only has one direction and that's forward. He's been this way his entire life, forward. And he has only one speed, which is full speed ahead. So this is why, among many reasons, he went early, he decided to announce early. The other thing that people are saying is that he wanted to announce to freeze the rest of the field and clear the decks. I don't think that that's going to be the case. Obviously, you're going to have people like Pence, Pompeo, uh, Nikki Haley, who are all going to set up exploratory committees starting in the new year maybe earlier. Um, and so you will get those announcements and they will see if they can try to raise money and gain any traction. They'll be all over early primary states like Iowa and New Hampshire, South Carolina and elsewhere. But really, there's Donald Trump as the 800-pound gorilla in the GOP and then there's Ron DeSantis, who is the other 800-pound gorilla in the race. Ron DeSantis has about 120 uh, or so $120 million in the bank that he raised for his reelection that can be transferred to another race. So DeSantis does not need to raise any money, at least not now. That gives him a huge advantage. DeSantis can afford to sit back and watch and wait. Sit back govern Florida in the incredible way that he's been governing it, and watch Donald Trump. If Trump flourishes, Ron DeSantis does not run. If Trump falters or flames out, Ron DeSantis runs. And if Trump is still in the calculation, that is going to be a cage match. But I think, you know what, I'm all for a robust primary. I am. I don't think anybody should be coronated, whether it's Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or whomever. I think you need a robust primary. We need to be having these debates in this party. There is so much crud in this party, starting with our leadership, which is another whole situation. But there's so much crud stuck to the bottom of of our boat here. And we need to have debates to really expose it and see who among the candidates is willing to take it on and clean it all up. And we know Trump is, right? So let's hear from the others. Trump has an unbelievable record. So now does Ron DeSantis, and and so do the others in different ways. So I think a strong primary along the lines of 2016 is exactly what we need. And I I think it's, look, Trump's not going to like it, of course. He wants to be coronated, and I understand that. But from a political point of view, we need a bunch of different voices, and we need that competition in order to sharpen the ultimate nominee. Ron DeSantis is a man of action right now because he happens to be a sitting governor. Donald Trump has been out of power now for two years, and obviously he's still deeply engaged. He is leading the party 
but he hasn't been in the arena in two years, so it will help him as well. But remember, guys, this is a critical point. No matter whom we nominate, Trump, DeSantis, Pompeo, whomever, the left is going to burn down the country again. It doesn't matter whom we put up, okay? Because their grand project has achieved so much, they're not about to lose it now. Trump caught them flat-footed in 2016. They have vowed to never allow that to happen again. So whether it's Trump, DeSantis, anybody, they're going to burn down the country again to stop that person. So are we going to go with someone who hasn't been through the fire and doesn't really get it yet? Or are we going to go with someone who is strong, tough, fierce, been through the fire and knows what's coming, is prepared for that? That's number one. Number two, which we will deal with later in the week, is that the GOP leadership has not fixed any of these mechanical electioneering problems. I mean, just basic electioneering, mass mail-in voting, ballot harvesting, ballot curing, early voting. They have not learned to play this game according to the rules as they exist. Maybe they don't want to learn, right? Maybe the question we all need to face is, they don't want to win. Maybe maybe that's the case. I mean, maybe we've just been assuming Mitch McConnell wants the majority in the Senate, but maybe he doesn't. Maybe he prefers to be in the permanent minority, a minority he can control rather than a majority he can't because it's America first. Again, guys, the change, the ultimate change rests with us. We're going to have to take this bull by the horns and put pressure on these leaders, nominate and support leaders, get out there at the local level ourselves, running for school boards, supporting local candidates, getting involved at the local uh, on the local scene in order to make this change. It's going to rest with us, as it always does. Okay, we've got so much more when we come back. This very extensive, important, and fun conversation with the one and only James O'Keefe. That's next, so do not go anywhere. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy And you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me 
and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Well, I am so excited to have with us today a true hero of this republic, a humble hero, but a hero nonetheless. James O'Keefe is the founder, CEO, and chairman of the board of Project Veritas, perhaps the most effective nonprofit on the national scene. As you know, Project Veritas investigates and exposes all manner of corruption, dishonesty, self-dealing, waste, fraud, and all kinds of other misconduct in both public and private institutions. People live in fear of Project Veritas, and if they're living in fear of Project Veritas and James O'Keefe, it means they are up to no good. James has built an extraordinary organization of citizen journalists who are doing the work the corrupt propaganda press will not. Their website is projectveritas.com, so please go check them out and support them however you can. James also has a blockbuster new book out about his and Project Veritas's decade-plus of investigative reporting. It's called American Muckraker. Go get it right now. You're going to love this, and it's such, such an important book. James joins me now. Hi, James. Hey, Monica. Great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here, and we saw each other over the weekend, and I thought we were long past due for this conversation, so I appreciate your taking the time. First, James, um, because of your work and Project Veritas's work in exposing the dark underbelly of so many institutions, from corporate America to the press and beyond, you really are a national hero. And yet, I know you well enough to, to know that you wear that mantle with great humility. Why is that? Well, Monica, I appreciate you saying that. And just by way of introduction, I'm in a car and I'm on the phone. So if it's a little static once in a while, I apologize. Uh, I think the humility comes from being a leader of an organization. Um, anybody who, I mean, I, I run an organization, I run a company, it's a nonprofit organization, it's still an organization, it's a team of people. And it, there's a constant burden to earn the respect of the people that work with me. Uh, a constant burden to raise the money to pay their salaries and pay the lawyers and a constant burden to, um, to keep going. You never rest on your laurels. So it's, it's a very punishing and uh, it's a very, it's a very punishing and deeply humbling life, <laughs> not to mention the constant attacks against your character uh, raids by the FBI and, and defamation by the media. It's, 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 it's so punishing. I, I would, I would submit to you. It's the reason why nobody else does it really. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Work that we do because you kind of have to be, you kind of have to like pain if you're in it for the wrong reasons. Of course, the reasons that we're in it reasons I, I think I'm in it because I'm an artist. I'm passionate about storytelling. I love the aspects of the storytelling and I'll endure any pain in order to do what I love. So that, that's in a nutshell why I think it, it's being the 
leader of Project Veritas is humbling. Well, you know, I, I know you, I have known you for a couple of years now, and I do know that you've got a very thick skin. I know that human beings are not necessarily born with thick skins. They are developed over time after being pummeled, um, as you certainly have over so many years. But I also know that you are a genuinely good person. You're a genuinely good soul, kind and decent, smart and fierce and tough, but you are a genuinely good person. Tell us a little bit about your your background, James. Where did you grow up, and how were you raised? Um, I was. I grew up in northern New Jersey, Bergen County, uh, Westwood, New Jersey, which is just near New York City suburbs of New York City. My my mother um, was a physical therapist, and as a as a young child, like four or five years old, she would drive me into the city where she worked in the Bronx in a nursing home. My father was an engineer and carpenter, and he renovated homes, and he kind of Bought, he bought his first house with no money, fixed it up, refinanced it, bought a second house. And in that process, this is late 80s, early 90s, as a six-year-old, seven-year-old boy, I would help my grandfather and father renovate these homes, uh, doing everything ourselves, literally everything, roofing, plumbing, mowing lawns, handing them two-by-fours. That was my childhood up until the age of 18. Um, and that really taught me, I, I think, hard work. My dad's was a very driven man, so much so that on the work site, we probably didn't even really talk to each other. We were just working the whole time. And my mother was a very artistic person and a very, very sweet woman and shy, but very well balanced in terms of her views on justice and the world. And I wouldn't say my parents were very conservative and politically at least, but I think they were very well balanced people and gave me a good down to earth up um, view of the world. They were both from upstate New York, so sort of from Appalachia up in upstate New York. So that was my upbringing. And then I went to college at Rutgers. And, and that's where I kind of confronted the political correctness on campus and started my own newspaper at Rutgers University when I was 19 years old. It's just such an extraordinary story. You know, the left loves to highlight American dream stories on their side, but they'll ignore the American dream stories on our side, whether it's Clarence Thomas or someone like you. And you tell a lot of these stories in your new book, American Muckraker, which, by the way, is an extraordinary memoir and also call to action. It's just a fantastic book. Everybody, please go get it. And what struck me is, you know, when you were talking about your early life, either now or in the book, those kinds of values that you were raised with, I am afraid they're becoming a little bit more rare in America today. But you point out that your parents were not particularly political, that, you know, they probably voted, you know, and that they paid attention to current events, just like my parents did. And they talked about current events. But we lived, we grew, you and I grew up in a time, maybe a little different time, but it was a time in America where politics did not infect every aspect of our lives, from sports to the culture, movies. We weren't getting lectured every five minutes. And people really had, I think, a much healthier existence back then. Politics was a part of their lives, but it wasn't all of their lives. And those kinds of values that you were raised with, James, I think really echo through all of your work. Yes. Well, I I, I went to I'm 38 years old. I graduated high school in 2002. Um, in high school, and rather, rather in middle school in New Jersey, I, don't, I can't remember anyone bringing up politics once. I, I didn't endure any of that. What, what were 
exposing now at Project Veritas in the schools, particularly after Trump was elected, um, where people are talking about anarchy and removing Christian from all Christ- Christianity everywhere from everything. I didn't endure that. I, I had a pretty well-balanced public school education, um, but things have certainly changed since I went to school in the 90s. Um, and I, and I, my parents were, were not political. I, I think the first, the first concept of politics that I ever remember enduring was when I was in ninth grade, I read George Orwell's Animal Farm. Uh, again, 1999 was the year give you some historical perspective. So some 23 years ago. And I remember, I remember that, that saying all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Yes. When Orwell wrote that, those words that affected me, but I never, I never had any living lived context to apply what that meant. Now, of course, it seems to me is that the issue at hand of our day, the weaponized weaponization of the justice department raids against journalists, the project Veritas, uh, selective law enforcement agencies targeting people due to their politics. This is like the issue in our country um, that we're dealing with. I think it's the most important thing. It motivated me then. I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't have an understanding of the context of that quote that Orwell wrote about in his fictional dystopian, you know, communist uh, uh, book, Animal Farm. But when I got to college at Rutgers University, uh, in New Jersey, I, suddenly things became very political. I was surrounded by political correctness. I was surrounded by de- uh, professors' doors decorated with propaganda, uh, uh, environmentalist policy on, on their front door, and, and people talking about how great Joseph Stalin was and Paul Robeson, who was a Stalinist, who was a Rutgers University alumnus. There were statues erected in his name, but no statues erected in the name of Milton Friedman, who himself was a Rutgers graduate. Nobel Prize winner, but no statues. And I, and I was confronted with this, what I called an imbalance, an injustice. Not so much I was a right winger or a left winger. I just felt it was out of balance. And that's what prompted me to do something. And that's what prompted these videos. I started doing these walk-in video reports on campus, um, which would years later become Project Veritas. So that was the uh, initial embryonic idea for Project Veritas. Did you have any interest in journalism? Did you idolize journalists? Did you have any journalistic heroes like Mike Wallace growing up? And did you think that you wanted a more traditional path into journalism? Great question. I did not put people always say, did you, what journalism school did you go to? And my, my response to that is, you know, well, do you th- I don't even know what they teach in journalism school anymore. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't go to journalism school. I, I, I think Mike Wall. I think it was Mike Wallace, legendary 60 minutes now deceased in a preface of a book called raising hell, which is about investigative reporting, which I read. He said, um, you learn more in three months on the job than you do in four months of, jur- you know, four years of journalism school, which is totally correct. I learned everything by doing. I, I started a magazine, news magazine. I, I modeled the layout after National Review magazine, but it was all focused on local reporting. And I learned by doing. And I failed and I picked myself up and I, I, I designed the whole thing myself. I, I edited the copy. I learned uh, at the time it was Adobe InDesign, uh, Adobe PageMaker, and then later Final Cut 7. I just went out and did it. In terms of um, people that I looked up to, um, it wasn't really, I, I watched a lot of local reporting. I read the New York Times every day. I read the USA Today. I read the Star-Ledger, which was New Jersey's local paper. But I actually looked to some interesting, uh, Monica, some interesting models. I There was a group called the Yes Men, 
which was sort of an agitprop group. They would sort of punk people by pretending to be something else. And they did this thing where they went into a Halliburton oil conference, Halliburton gasoline, you know, the company. And they, they wore these survivor costumes to survive global warming. And these oil executives, which are all, were all Republicans, right-wing people, were, were entertaining the idea that they need to purchase these ridiculous survival suits to survive global warming. And I thought it was interesting that these left-wing pranksters were, were, were exposing the, um, I guess you could call the hypocrisies of people on the right, which it certainly was a form of hypocrisy. And I decided, well, let me apply that, but to other things. And I went into my dean's office with a box of Lucky Charms and tried to expose the fact. They said, well, Lucky Charms are racist against the Irish, myself being Irish-American. I went in there with a straight face and a hidden camera. The year was 2005. That was the first undercover video I did, which I, Lucky Charms are racist against the Irish. And I put them in this horrible situation where the dean had to either agree with me, which is absurd, or not take me seriously and upset the, the campus rules, which say you have to take everyone's uh, uh, racial uh, uh, grievances seriously. And they chose the better of those two paths, and they chose to ban Lucky Charms on the grounds they're racist against the Irish. So you, you, <laughs> that was your first foray into this, James. That was the first foray, and then it was immediately followed by some other videos I did, I, I confronted these professors over how decorated their doors were with propaganda. I published all the salaries of the professors. This is a state university at Rutgers. Um, and then after graduation, I met a girl named Lila Rose at UCLA, and we went into Planned Parenthood in Santa Monica, California. And the, the Planned Parenthood officials were telling me how to how to get an illegal abortion, lie about her age. She said she was 14. Um, and they told her to say that she was 16 or something over a certain age so that it wouldn't be statutory rape. And that really became a, um, a national story. It was, a, it was not a big story, but it was a national story. Got on O'Reilly Factor. And then, um, and then after that, I did the story on Acorn. Everyone knows that one. Yes. That was the pimp and prostitute going in. I met Hannah Giles, the young woman who did that story. She was 20 years old because she was inspired by what I did with Lila. She messaged me with this idea to go into Acorn pretending to be a pimp and a prostitute. And then Congress defunded Acorn as a result of our expose. And of course, the rest is history. Suddenly, everyone knew that this genre of journalism, this undercover agitprop, undercover investigative reporting, everyone kind of knew how effective it was, how important it was, and they wanted me to do it in every city in the country. Okay, James, please stand by. A lot more to cover with you coming up. But first, I want to take a moment to welcome a brand new sponsor, Worthy. There's a new easy way to get money for that diamond jewelry that you are not wearing. It's called Worthy. Worthy is a platform that can get you up to two or three times as much money as a pawn shop or a local jewelry shop will offer with absolutely zero risk. Worthy puts your jewelry in front of a worldwide network of professional buyers, people who will bid against each other for your diamond. And Worthy makes it so easy. Free shipping, free insurance coverage, free professional grading and evaluation. And guess what? You're in control from start to finish. If your price isn't met, you don't have to sell and you get your piece back no charge. 
And now for a limited time, you'll get an extra $100 when your jewelry sells for over $1,500. All you have to do is register at worthy.com slash Monica. That's worthy.com slash Monica. Get more for your diamond jewelry at worthy.com slash Monica. Worthy, a better way to cash in on that hidden asset in your jewelry box. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back with a great James O'Keefe. You know, it's just amazing. I remember that acorn story, and that was your first huge victory. Um, You know, the whole thing with Project Veritas is a David and Goliath kind of story because you're like a shoestring operation, and you're doing it out of just uh, the sheer desire for decency and honesty, transparency, accountability in this culture and and in our society. And you go, go up against these huge corporate Goliaths or the federal government, which is the ultimate corporate Goliath. And you just, you, you do it on a shoestring. And it's, that victory really set Project Veritas on this national trajectory, which also really put you in the crosshairs, which I want to get to in just a second. What do you consider your biggest expose? Um, that's, a, that's, an int- that's a question that, that is subjective because it's going to depend upon what people are most passionate about. I actually think, and I want to speak in recent terms, because I can go back three to six years with some big ones. We did the Jeffrey Epstein, Amy Robach story. That was massive. That was that shattered. I mean, that was earth shattering. Yes. The, uh, hashtag Epstein didn't kill himself. We did the Democracy Partner story in 2016 with Bob Creamer. That was mentioned by Trump in the debate with Hillary. That was massive. That was that was that was the probably the most watched and most consequential. But I actually think the most important work we've done is recently in the last year in the schools with teachers. Uh, and principals ex- being exposed and being fired. Uh, there is the one in Sacramento with um, the anarchist teacher. He was fired. And that prompted school board meetings in Sacramento. That was right before the Glenn Youngkin phenomenon in Virginia. We did one recently in Connecticut with Jeremy Boring, who is an assistant principal in Greenwich, Connecticut, a suburb of New York City. And he said he doesn't hire Catholics. He doesn't hire people over the age of 30. This is an assistant principal does not know he's being reported. That prompted outrage. And I think that we're very divided in this country right after these midterms. It seems like people are talking about this. We're just so divided. And what's the solution to that division? We try to find issues where people can agree. And Monica, what was interesting about the Connecticut story that we did a couple months ago with Jeremy Boring is that a Democratic attorney general launched a civil rights investigation, not into Project Veritas, but into what we exposed. And, and it was like a, an issue where everyone kind of agreed, okay, this is wrong. We shouldn't discriminate against people in the hiring process due to their religion. So I think the most powerful work that Veritas has done, Monica, is the one is the work that, whether it's Jeffrey Epstein or Don't Mess With Our Children in Connecticut, are the issues that bring people together. And I think journalism, real journalism, real investigative reporting, has a huge responsibility for uniting people around this, these issues of consensus in our society. And I think we have more in common than maybe people would like to admit. 
I love that point, and I hope it's true. I really do. I hope it's true. I remember when I was working with President Nixon in the last years of his life, James, he often said, he said, look, the the media, and remember, this is like 25 years ago, he said, the media is so biased to the left, it's a miracle we get anything covered, it's a miracle Republicans get elected to anything, but he did say that reporters will report a story, even if it's a negative one on Democrats, because the story in the end trumps everything for them. And again, that was about 25 years ago. I don't think that that holds true anymore. I think that the propaganda press is so deeply entrenched with the Democrats and the left, it really is an organ of that of them, and that they do, they will bury, and you've proved this with Project Veritas, they will go and bury stories rather than run out there, expose people on the left and win a Pulitzer Prize. They would rather not have the Pulitzer Prize, but protect uh, their ideological compatriots and their ideological agenda. Do you agree with that? Partially. I, 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 I have to be an optimist in that if the story is strong enough, it'll force, it'll force the media to cover it. Um, And that's why I agree with it if it's words only, but that's why Veritas does visual. And this is a little, you know, you work with Nixon in the, in the, uh, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, I think in in this age, you can take a video clip of someone saying something like Mayor Eric Adams is a great example. Um, I'm I'm sure he's Mayor Mayor Eric Adams is Democrat. He's, he's, he's a beloved member of, of, by, by the media. New York times loves him at least to a degree. But when Veritas caught his aide on tape calling Mayor Adams corrupt, um, <laughs> saying things like, you know, screw these firefighters and police officers. They didn't get the vaccine attacking first responders. Mayor Adams was forced to fire him as a result of what this aide was caught on tape by Veritas. And, then, and all these local TV stations and New York press people were caught in this bind because, you know, they can't attack Veritas for doctoring tapes if Mayor Eric Adams is firing um, the guy they can't attack Project Veritas it was fascinating to watch. So I think if the story is strong enough and it's visually compelling enough, um, uh, I actually think there's hope. It's very difficult though, and it's very difficult for people to get beyond the, the barrier to entry in journalism. Um, putting a clip on Twitter, putting a clip on Instagram, if it's strong enough, it'll force a reaction by the powers that be, which will in turn force the media to talk about it. Another another example, Monica. I would say, uh, you know, to Nixon's point, the ACLU came out and defended Project Veritas after the FBI raid, which which evokes audible gasps from conservatives. Like they can't believe that that the American Civil Liberties Union would defend me, but they did because mm. it was just crossing a Rubicon so so crazy that you would you would forcibly take journalists notebooks from them because you don't like them that's what the biden administration has done that's what merrick garland i mean we don't know whether merrick garland personally approved of the raid against myself um the law says he has to in a case like this uh garland would later put out a memo this was actually last month saying that it's it's not okay for uh the department of justice to forcibly remove reporters notes from journalists just because you you know in in an investigation into their activities in the scope of news gathering but this goes back to the george orwell point i brought to you when i read in ninth grade that some animals are equal and some are more equal than others i'm sure that people would not consider project veritas journalists 
but um, but I, I think it is possible to form consensus in society if the story is strong enough. Well, that's very hopeful. And and I hope that you're right. I think we've seen certain examples of that, James, and you have certain, certainly uh, forced the propaganda press to cover a lot of stories that they otherwise would not have. So kudos to you. Let's talk a little bit about the blowback uh, that you've received over the years. You know, once your stories go public and once you had the acorn story, of course, that put you right in the crosshairs. But you have been smeared, attacked. Uh, you've been raided by the FBI over the Ashley Biden story. Tell us a little bit about that because that that is just a complete horror show. And when people hear this, they cannot believe that that happened in the United States. Yeah, it's it's a it's a long story that would pro- probably require 30 minutes of exposition, exposition but I'm going to try to do it in 60 seconds. Um, that, this is a, over the Ashley Biden diary, the, the diary belonging to the daughter of the president. And someone, a source had had, had tipped us off about this and we met with these tipsters and um and uh we decided not to publish the diary because i couldn't confirm its authenticity with 100 percent certainty and even if i could confirm its authenticity i couldn't confirm that what ashley biden wrote in the diary actually occurred i chose not to publish it but i did reach out to joe biden for comment reached out to his, his daughter for comment ashley biden ashley biden's daughter uh sent my request for comment our request for comment to the fbi department of justice who then, unbeknownst to me at the time, this is in 2020, obtained secret warrants against Microsoft, Google, Uber, for all of my information. And, and secret warrants are very rarely used, and they're never used against journalists. They were attempted to be used in the Trump administration against the New York Times, but, but that was uh, backed off of. And they, these warrants were executed. They got all my emails, unbeknownst to me. Uh, one of the things on the um, search warrant for, for that was extortion, which or blackmail, which I, I suppose was related to my request for comment. A request for comment is by no means blackmail. In any event, a year later, um, they raided my two journalists. On the warrant there, it said transportation of stolen material across state lines. This was, I guess, the diary. But again, it's not illegal for a journalist to receive a, a document, even if that document was stolen as so long as the journalist played no part in the theft of that document. We didn't think it was stolen. Even if it was later alleged to be, there's nothing illegal about a journalist publishing a stolen document. In fact, the New York Times and Washington Post do that every day. So when they came to my home two days after my reporter's homes on November 5th, 2021, about a year ago, um, they had a battering ram, they had guns, they had uh, you know, you know, vests, FBI jackets, at 6 a.m. on a Saturday, a, a battering ram, I, I opened the door, they put me in handcuffs, uh, and they took my two iPhones. And we all know what's on our iPhones, source material, reporter material, lawyer material, confidential material. Monica, this happened a year ago. Uh, no charges have been filed. No one has been indicted. I have not been at my team. Uh, we don't know. You know. This is just sort of ongoing at this point. We filed a motion with the judge to get our stuff back. The ACLU, the Reporters Committee, left-wing journalists, society professional journalists, almost the entire media has um, has come out and said that this is wrong. This should not happen in the United States of America. Uh, Merrick Garland has said that this should not happen. He wasn't referring to us, but he was referring generally to the notion of raids against journalists and forcibles, uh, forcible forcing reporters to hand over their notebooks. But nothing has happened, and there, I've testified before uh, members of Congress about it, um, 
and um, we, this matter just remains ongoing. You know, the, this is uh, the FBI and the DOJ. You and I were talking about this right at the start of our conversation. The most dangerous we, threat we face is the weaponization of our own government against us. And you, right there with that story, you have become an enemy of the state with your work. And that story just illustrates exactly what we're up against here. Well, it, it was a terrifying thing. I mean, I've, I've written a whole book about my first arrest by the FBI. It's called Breakthrough. I was exonerated. But it was, I mean, it's terrifying beyond imagination. I mean, it, it's designed to terrorize you. And frankly, the, the punishment is the process, the, the, the legal bills. I mean, Veritas runs a nonprofit foundation. We have a 20 plus million dollar budget. One third of that is legal bills, which is, we, yeah. we have so many lawyers to deal with this. And it, it becomes Kafkaesque. You, you do everything lawfully, you do everything legally, but they don't think that you're a journalist. The, the prosecutor said in the, one of the motions before the judge, Your Honor, Project Veritas is not journalism because they don't get consent in their video recordings and they record people, which is, which is an argument that's so absurd um, that, they would, that they would say that. Um, but they did. So uh, the, the, the experience of being handcuffed uh, in your apartment, um, you, you, you wonder if, they, if they're willing to cross that Rubicon if you will, if they're willing to do that sort of thing, what other things are they willing to do? Are they willing to plant evidence on you, plant drugs on you? Um, and when you haven't broken the law, it's actually more terrifying. Um, they, they, the New York Times published leaked attorney-client memos days after the raid. Gee, I wonder how they obtained those. And the, the memos actually made us look good. It said we don't break the law, and they were advising us how to do things. But the fact that we have a New York Times organization that's working in concert with the FBI, that's coordinating with federal agents that they're acting as the spokesperson for the federal agencies instead of investigating them that contributes to the terror to know that our fourth estate is not holding these agencies accountable and i think that uh, congressman jordan who wrote a letter to the merrick garland about our case just just last week said that he's he's sending out preservation letters if, if and when they, he becomes the over the uh, ranking member for the oversight committee i mean it's, it's terrifying, Monica, and, and it's and it's something that you have to kind of endure and you have to be willing to keep going no matter what. Project Veritas, whether the New York Times likes to admit it or not, is fighting for their First Amendment rights. And, and it's it's pretty tragic that they don't stand up for the rights. They're one of the only entities in America that has not uh, uh, said that this is wrong, what the FBI is doing to Project Veritas. You know, James, you said something important, and I want to disagree with you respectfully on, on one point you said. You said that they don't consider you to be a journalist. They don't consider Project Veritas to be journalism. I disagree with you. I think that they are radical leftists, but they're not stupid. They know exactly what you are and who you are and the work that you do. They do consider you journalists and a journalist and doing journalism and you're doing the wrong kind of journalism. So they are sicking the most fearsome agency of the federal government, the FBI, the DOJ, on you in order to intimidate you, bankrupt you, and crush you, to dissuade you from, from getting off the scent and doing these stories, exp uh, you know, exposing all of their corruption. They know you're a journalist. That's why you're in the crosshairs. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, we're in uncharted waters, I think that a lot of people, this is the first question I get asked usually about the FBI raid, not about the journalism that we're doing. So it, to a certain extent, it, 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 it's not working because it hasn't stopped Project Veritas. We're, we're, we're producing more stories than ever. 
I think a lot of people look at us and probably view us as, frankly, um, the FBI raid uh, legitimized us to a certain extent because it, it you know, you know, as Winston Churchill said, it, you can tell, tell a man's uh, virtues by his um, by his enemies, if you will, and his vices by his friends. So the fact that we have the full weight and force of the federal government coming after us means that we must be doing something right. And Lord knows if there was something illegal that we that I had ever done, which I don't break the law, that would have been leaked to the New York Times by now. Right. So uh, they, they have nothing uh, because there is nothing illegal. We have we have I've been so careful, Monica, since 2010. Uh, that's another story for another day. My arrest and subsequent um, uh, vindication in New Orleans, Louisiana, I wrote a book called Breakthrough about those U.S. attorneys, those prosecutors uh, writing about me on blogs and, and making things up. And they were eventually disbarred for their behavior. I've been so careful. I live my life like there are 12 people always watching. I run everything through a litany of attorneys. Uh, we're dealing with some of the most interesting First Amendment and Fourth Amendment precedents in the history of the United States. To raid a journalist, to point guns at reporters' heads and take their, 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 their effects, their phones, their documents, just because you don't like them, is one of the, it's probably the, the most egregious violation of the First Amendment in the history of the United States, because think about it, there's no restitution. Once those government agents see who your sources are, they can't pay me a billion. People say, well, why don't you just sue them? There's no amount of money that the Department of Justice can give to me to make me whole after violating me like that, and frankly, violating our sources like that. And, and it does chill out um, people coming to us. I'm talking about whistleblowers now, not, not our undercover reporters. They'll never be deterred. But it deters sources from coming to you if they, those sources can be forcibly taken from you. And I think that's why Ben, Ben's, uh, there was one guy uh, at the New York Times uh, who came out and said, journalists should not be cheerleading this raid against Project Veritas. It's wrong. It's principally wrong. And, uh, and so, on, so, on some matters, we can unite. And that's one of them. James, I need to hit a quick break, but I want to cover some other things with you. So please sit tight. More straight ahead. We're back now with our final moments with the heroic James O'Keefe. I want to talk to you about big tech because you've been suspended from Twitter. Big tech, which is an arm of the left, um, has taken all kinds of actions to suppress or suspend you, Project Veritas, etc. With Elon Musk now in charge of Twitter, how hopeful are you that your account will be restored? Do you want your account to be restored? And what's your overall view of Musk's management? I do. I do want my account to be restored. And, and the question behind your question really is on that is, um, you know, I, should, do I want to be on Twitter? I want to be everywhere. I want to be covered by the New York Times. I want Project Veritas to be covered by CBS News. And we have to be covered by the mainstream media. We, we can't preach to the choir. We have to we have to uh, go where people are talking. And usually whether that's Walter Cronkite in the 1980s or Peter Jennings in the 90s or, you know, Telegram and or Twitter, whatever, wherever people are talking, we should be there. So I want our account restored. Do I think our account will be restored? I do. I don't have any inside information. I don't. I don't uh, speak personally to to Mr. Musk, but I believe that the reasons we were suspended were so dubious, and I think Veritas is in a different category than the people that have been banned. We literally quote people, Monica. We show people's faces. We don't. I don't opine on things. I don't make bombastic political commentary. 
that's not who I am. I've never been that way. They, they banned us on Twitter because this is ridiculous. Um, we were filming a video on the street and our video camera uh, happened to capture a glimpse of, of a lamp, of, of a sign on someone's lawn with the number of the house. So they say that we doxed this person because the camera showed the number on the front of their home. And by the way, CNN does that all the time and they're still on Twitter. Right. So I think that because the reason we were banned is so dubious, I think Elon Musk will have us on. I don't have any inside information, but that's my gut. Um, in terms of Elon's management style, I, he's, I guess he's trying to bring the company to profitability. Um, and that's a, that's a, a management question. And I think he's, uh, he, he's had to take some radical steps some radical moves, laying off half the company. I read a report about that. I don't know what's true and what's not, but Veritas has done a lot of reporting about the people at Twitter. Most famously in the spring of this past year, we recorded a guy saying they're all communists there at Twitter. Yes. And we recorded a guy making real political statements. So it seems like there's a toxic culture in that place. And Elon Musk is trying to is trying to clean up the culture. Well, the good news for you, and I'm sure you saw this a couple of days ago, James, is that Musk Musk said that he wants Twitter to be an open platform for citizen journalists. You and Project Veritas have single handedly created the modern version of that. So I I am pretty confident you're going to get your account back. I think that's great news for, for Project Veritas and anybody out there who wants to take on the propaganda press and do the work that they should be doing well thank you very much and um i i think he he will have us on hopefully soon i i think so listening uh Please bring us back on. And and I don't know this because I've never met Mr. Musk either, but he is, I, I think he's probably a big fan of Project Veritas because he's a guerrilla kind of guy. You know, he's, he's he, you have a guerrilla army of citizen journalists out there and he's sort of, you know, in the big tech world, he's one of these guys that doesn't fit a particular mold. And from that, I think he looks with great respect at you and Project Veritas. All right. Um, just finally here, James, what's next for Project Veritas and where can people find you and Project Veritas on social media? Um, we're breaking stories almost every other day. I mean, we just did a story a few days ago in Westport, Connecticut that got a teacher fired for his sexual comments about his underage students um, in the classroom. And that fallout is happening in Westport, Connecticut today. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, uh, Telegram, Facebook, YouTube, we're on all we're on we're on all the channels except Twitter. We tend to trend on Twitter. Our story on Friday got one million views on Twitter. You might be asking, how is that possible if we're banned? That's because other people em- embed the clips and they download them from our telegram page. So and all you can also send us a tip, Veritas Tips at ProtonMail.com. That's Veritas Tips at ProtonMail.com. If you have a source or a, a tip or a a lead. We have a team standing by at the ready, and you can go to our website, projectveritas.com. We are a tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We need financial donations to continue. We have no advertisers. No one tells us what not to do or what to do. We're truly independent, which is what journalism is supposed to be, without fear or favor. 
that's what journalism is supposed to be, and we're trying to emulate that. So go to our website, projectveritas.com today. I just want to echo that to the audience that uh, the propaganda press is corporate media. And when you hear the phrase corporate media, it's because corporations uh, uh, support them, fund them, and they take advertising revenue from uh, corporations like Pfizer, for example. So Project Veritas does none of that, and they rely on independent contributions, donations to keep their really important work going. They are completely uncompromised because they don't take corporate money that could be tainted or connected to any kind of agenda. So please, whatever resources you have, uh, time, money, uh, whatever you've got, please go to projectveritas.com and support them however you can. The great James O'Keefe, again, a hero of this republic, and I am honored to call you a friend, James. Thank you so much. Thank you, Monica. Okay, guys, thank you so much for being here with me today. Please tell everybody you know about the Monica Crowley podcast. Everybody should be listening to the pure fire that we put out on this show every day. Thanks also for checking out our great sponsors. I will see you right back here on Friday, where we are going to talk to Republican rising star, the phenomenal congressman, Byron Donalds of Florida. He will be here. In the meantime, have a great end to your week. And I will see you right here on Friday. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.